Good evening. I'd like you to welcome me to this. Um, well, I'd like to firstly to thank the Africa, Oxford African Studies Seminar Series for inviting me to talk about my work. Um, the title of this um, talk was due to be Unmasking Africana in British Art, but there was some work which I wanted to share with you that doesn't address British art directly, so perhaps you should just think of the subject as Unmasking Africana. And um, the reason, obviously, I want the lights to be dimmed is because primarily this is an artist talk from my perspective, and if you can't see the work properly, the talk doesn't make any sense at all. So, and a lot of my work is, some of it's like this piece here, is kind of nocturnal, and it's, um, it's sort of a presentation. So, yeah. Okay. So, um, this the title of my doctorate was Africana Unmasked: Fugitive Signs of Africa in Tate's British Collection. I, I was awarded in 2016, um, and the the thesis kind of documents my discovery, description, and also critical analysis of um, what I call unmasking Africana as an artistic methodology. So it was a practice-based thesis, and the aim was to create artworks with a very visual um, African theme that would be visibly connected to artworks that seem to have nothing to do with Africa. So the purpose of making these kind of connections is to facilitate through art a critique of those artworks which appear to have nothing to do with Africa. Um, with my work acting as a kind of conduit for that sort of um, understanding. And um, uh, later this year the, the, the Oxford University Press is going to be publishing a chapter which is based on part of my thesis called in, in, an, in an anthology called Classicisms in the Black Atlantic. So. Um, perhaps I could send details if people want to buy this wonderful new publication when it comes out. Um, <coughs> so, Africa has always been very important to my art. Um, however, I have a very expansive view of the subject and the term, so I f that's why I frequently use the term Africana, um, because its usage by American, U.S., Africana studies academics, I think, helps facilitate thinking about people, places, ideas, and artifacts <coughs> with a strong and definitive association with Africa, as well as with the peoples of Africa and its diasporas. And before I talk in depth about the notion of unmasking Africana, I want to just give a brief view of my artistic journey that led towards those works. <coughs> I'm, I'm just going to have some water because I'm starting to get thirsty already. Um, so this uh, painting that you can see on the screen now um, was made quite early in my career and is uh, an imaginary depiction of two historical characters who played a leading role in the Haitian Revolution which defeated um, slavery and colonialism um, in, in 1804 when Haiti gained its independence. 
and um, this picture here, which you can on, on screen now, it's um, called Toussaint Louverture at Bederet, is an artwork from the same um, series. And I suppose, in terms of think, you know, in terms of what I was saying about Africana, and thinking about Africa, for me, um, you know, the question of diaspora is is very important. So, certainly, at the time in the 19th century when um, the sort of people of Haiti and other enslaved Africans in the New World were, you know, struggling for their, for their emancipation. Many times they considered themselves to be African and in some respects still do, as we know from the, the phrase African-American. So, um, yeah, I think that, that says that. Um, and by the way, if people want to ask questions in the course, if something really bothers you that you don't think you can wait, then you can feel free to, to kind of interject if something's really burning you. Um, and just to give you a kind of idea of the sort of, they're quite, these paintings are quite kind of large. They're sort of designed to be, they're not gigantic paintings, but they sort of have a monumental feel when you approach them. They're sort of quite big paintings, and that's um, a sort of installation view of Toussaint Louverture Bidoret um, taken last year at the Wolverhampton Art Gallery. And I suppose one of the things about this early work um, was was that I was already thinking very much of how to navigate ideas of black and African history in relationship to um, Western and European art. Um, so, for example, this, this, this painting, the Toussaint painting, has got a sort of... Um, uh, a visual relationship to um, a, a painting by a French um, um, neoclassicist painter, Jacques-Louis David, which depicts Napoleon um, in a very similar pose to this, um, sort of, you know, an equestrian warrior leading their troops. But I, when I created this Toussaint Louverture painting, I did things to sort of subtly... Um, which I, I can't show you because I haven't brought, put the David painting here, but um, sort of subtly make comments about the, the artistry around um, the paint, around the, the sort of French painting. But also, um, I suppose, what am I trying to say? So this, this relationship to, to, the, to the artworks and also thinking about how Oftentimes, um, there are elements of European history which have a strong connection to black life and to African life, which aren't in any way visible in European artworks. So in this instance, for example, um, the reason I wanted to make um, a kind of allusion to this painting about Napoleon was because Napoleon was the leader of France at the time that Toussaint Louverture was, you know, battling against um, sort of French and French colonialism. So there's a sort of a, a biographical or historical connection between my work and the the other.
And similarly, from the same kind of um, series, the title of this work, Bacchus and Ariadne, is kind of related to a similar, um, or to a, a, a Renaissance painting, <coughs> with a kind of similar composition. So I was thinking very much about how um, you could take motifs and ideas from Renaissance and classic, neoclassical Western painting and think about how that might be relevant to black and African history. And yeah, I should point out that this painting was made in 2004, and it was specifically for the bicentenary of the Haitian Revolution. And here is another sort of installation photograph from when the painting was displayed at, um, at the Venice Biennale in the Diaspora Pavilion uh, um, 18 months ago. <coughs> And then also my work has um, very much focused on the lives of um, black and African people in, in the West, in the sort of Western diaspora, well, when I say in the West, because I suppose Haiti is in the West, isn't it? But perhaps you could say in the metropolitan West, in, and particularly in Britain. Um, so this painting was created in 2005. Um, it's called Under Fire, the Shooting of Cherry Gross, and I suppose it's a kind of self-explanatory <coughs> title and image. And again, just to give you a, a kind of indication of what the paintings look like in situ, it's an installation photograph from a couple of years ago in Nottingham. <coughs> so I'm just going to start talking now a bit more about this question of unmasking Africana and what I mean by that and what... Um, so how that came about in my practice. So this um, painting, or it's not painting, it's a, a mixed media assemblage. It's called UK Diaspora. It was created in 2007 to mark the 200th anniversary of Parliament's 1807 Act to Abolish the Slave Trade. And I would say that one of the things that I do in my work, um, both through the titles and also through the, the way which the work is created, is it's very attentive to kind of specific details, historical details. So the fact that this was created to mark a 200th anniversary is kind of emblematic of the way that I practice, also using quotations and this kind of thing in the titles. So I always try to have these very kind of quite specific, detailed relationships with um, documented historical characters and events. And as you could probably tell, the work um, sort of brings together all these different canvases in a kind of map of the island of Great Britain. And you know, there's sort of a range in that in that shape. And the the kind of um, basic concept of UK diaspora is that um, it incorporates portraits of famous people connected with slavery. Um, there was a kind of notion of the thinking about a, a sort of um, a triad of concepts in a way to represent the notion of the um, the, the, the um, what do you call it, the Atlantic Triangle, I've forgotten even the phrase, what's the phrase, what we call it? the triangular trade, the triangular trade, that's right, there's this notion of a triad of concepts which sort of underpins this, 
this work. Um, so on the one hand, is this, and the idea was that each each sort of um, point of this triad would represent a kind of art, an aesthetic, an art, an artistic aesthetic associated with the geographical points of the triangular trade. So the portraits of famous people connected with slavery represented, as it were, the European um, um, point of the, of the triangle. <coughs> there are kind of symbolic objects, um, which you'll see in more detail in a minute, sort of attached to each work, which are supposed to have a, a relationship to the voodoo, to the various voodoo religions, which appeared in the in the um, the New World as a result of of African um, enslavement, such as Santeria and um, Candomblé and um, other, you know, Haitian voodoo. And then around each of the individual canvases, there are at least sort of thousands or hundreds of nails, which represent the kind of like an appropriation of the Inkeesian Kondi sacred sculpture motif, which obviously comes directly from Africa. So if you go into a little bit more detail about this notion of unmasking Africana, so on the screen at the moment there's a, a painting of, um, of Sir John Hawkins, Has anyone heard of Sir John Hawkins before? Yes? The devil himself. Um, so, what I'm doing actually is right now is I'm digging in for my little laser. Does that work? Or if I take that out, it will work. There you go. Okay. So, um, yeah, so John Hawkins, obviously a Tudor, um, a Tudor sea captain. This portrait, um, apparently done in 1580, in 1581, and is on permanent display in the National Maritime Museum. Um, I think they've kind of slightly changed. When I first made this artwork, the, the way that they showed this painting so was different. So back, so we're talking about you know, 12 years ago. Um, I think now the way they label it is a little bit more. Um, there's a bit more clarity. Um, but obviously, Sir John Hawkins, um, to, have his, to have his portrait on display in the National Maritime Museum, as it has been for a very long time, um, was a kind of a statement of, I suppose, praise for him. And um, whereas what I did in UK diaspora, so just to go back a couple of slides, the, the Sir John Hawkins one is there. Um, so what I did in UK diaspora, I created this smaller work called Arise Sir John, and the idea of it was to kind of, I suppose, express my um, anger, if you like, of my knowledge that this portrait represents someone who kidnapped sort of 1,500 West Africans, sold them into um, sort of slave labour camps during the 16th century. So you can see that there's a a piece of um, of a nail has been driven through Sir John's head or face in my portrait. So it's a kind of way. It's a, if you like, it's a kind of a commentary not only on the the life of this person and his evil deeds, 
but also on the artwork itself. And another, so just I'll skip back again. So there's another, it's kind of they're next to each other. This is this one in the assemblage. Elizabeth I, this portrait hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. When I first saw it, it was in Tate's, it was in Tate Britain, but it's now gone back to the National Portrait Gallery. And I suppose it was this particular work and this particular thing which sparked my decision to do the PhD thesis. Um, but by the time I kind of started it, um, it wasn't in the Tate anymore. But, you know. Um, so it's a 1575 portrait by Nicholas Hilliard. And you can see that my version of it sort of reverses the the um the the you know the orientation of the, the portrait and the reason I wanted to include Elizabeth is because obviously well perhaps not obviously she loaned Hawkins a ship explicitly for him to carry out his slave trading and kidnapping activities and then when he came back um, with lots of money and treasure for her she knighted him and appointed him a, a uh, Admiral in, in the, the English Navy. Um, and so the work has got a lot of, my kind of work has got lots of, I suppose, symbolic um, things which relate to this history. Um, and amongst them is, which you can just about see, on the original Hilliard painting you have all these kind of um, Sort of like, I think they're supposed to be rose, roses or lilies or something, flowers, and so in my version, I sort of replaced them with um, faces of all of the. I mean, I've put seventeen, but there's probably more than that. Cinema actors who over the years have um, represented Queen Elizabeth, including Oscar and BAFTA winners like Kate Blanchett, and Helen Mirren, and Doogie Dench. And in all of all of the sorry, all of the films of um, in which um, Elizabeth is portrayed, whether she's portrayed well or not so well in terms of her you know status in the movie, slavery and her role in it is never mentioned, never has been, including the current Queen Elizabeth film, which I believe is out at the moment. Um, and this was a was a film which I think came out in 2007, so at the moment that Britain was supposedly claiming to be um, celebrating the abolition of the slave trade, the sort of film industry felt it was the time to show a movie in which the founder of the slave trade was you know, seen as a great heroine of, um, of English life. So this work, I suppose, was created as a, <coughs> as a kind of a as a kind of a, a protest, if you like, as a counterbalance to that kind of iconography which permeates the British art world and British cultural life around figures who've been involved in the exploitation <coughs> of African people over the years. And other slave trading figures in the work include people like George Washington, Sir Isaac Newton, Francis Drake, Dan Daniel Defoe, all of whom had, um, you know, their fingers in the pie. 
And um, this is a photograph of the, uh, an installation photograph of the work, which again, I suppose gives you an, an idea of the kind of scale and you know the way the work looks in 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 um, when it's just been installed. And it was acquired by the International Slavery Museum in 2017, which um, was, you know, um, they had it there for their sort of 10th anniversary. So I want to move on to uh, a work now which was um, much more strongly featured, which kind of arose directly through the PhD process, through the doctoral process, maybe gives you, an, for those of you who don't, aren't sort of so familiar with how practice-led theses work. So um, this painting is called Ya Asantiwa, Inspecting the Dispositions at Ejisu. It's 2014, and it says at the bottom, collection of the British Museum, because they bought it last year, and it's hopefully going to be going on display later this year in Africa galleries. Um, and obviously, um, Yara Santiwa, um, for, for those who aren't familiar, was an anti-colonial leader in um, 1900s West Africa. Um, the portrait, the woman who's displayed in, who's actually portrayed in the, in the painting, the face of them. So the, whereas the painting represents Yara Santiwa, the actual portrait is of my partner, who's British-born and of West African heritage. And sort of the the the, the scenery, the, the landscape, the background in which the this portrait is set um, is based on my photographs um, of Ga the countryside in, in Ghana. And so now on screen is a, a painting by John Singer Sargent, um, who was a sort of I suppose the preeminent portrait artist of. Um, late 19th century and early 20th century Britain and America. And <coughs> this painting is um, it's, it's held by Tate, it's held in Tate Britain. It's often on display in Tate Britain, it's not at the moment, but it, it, it kind of comes in and out of display in their Victorian paintings room. Um, and it's called A Study of Madame Gautreau. And um, I should say, Madame Gautreau, he, he, it was made in Paris um, in 1884. Um, and it's a kind of um, the, the portrait of a Parisian socialite um, called Madame Gautreau. She was the wife of a wealthy Parisian banker. And the text here on the side, which you probably can't read if you're sitting far back, is basically taken from the, the sort of online caption at, in, you know, in Tate's website about the work, which, in itse which itself is extracted from the sort of catalogue entry for when, you know, when they created the catalogue of, of the collection with um, this work in it. And it, nothing in this... Um, text mentions that um, this is where Madame Gautreau is from. She was from a Louisiana plantation family. This is a photograph of her dad in his Confederate uniform. They were very ardent Confederate kind of slave-holding family. Um, 
So there's nothing about that in the text about her, which, you know, is fair enough. They can write what they like, can't they, about um, this, this lady. Um, so, yeah, the enslaved Africans who produced Madame Gaucho's inheritance are not visible in portraits or curatorial texts. So from my perspective, in terms of my sort of theory, my thesis about my art and the art it relates to, I consider this to be what I'd call masked Africana, because there's a, there's a, there's a way in which by you know, producing the wealth which allowed her to become the subject of this um, high-value portrait, there's a kind of, a, as it were, a, a very strong connection between her and the African people who labored on this plantation. <coughs> and the, you can see there's a slight difference between this painting and this other one, because there's, a, there's two of them. There's a, there, there's a, there are two paintings which are more or less exactly the same. Um, and this one is on display permanently in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, where it's one of their sort of signature pride of place um, paintings. And they're their, um, um, what do you call it, uh, you know, the way they curate, uh, the, the way they contextualize this work doesn't have any sort of mention of the, um, the, uh, the history that lies behind Madame Gaucho's social position. So from my perspective, um, unmasked Africana, which is, I think, what I'm trying to make, they're intended as visual appropriations of the... the the masking work, but they function as what I'd call a detournement, which is an art world term, which means that a turning around a reversal of meanings. So you can see that there's a very close sort of um, visual relationship between the Yara Santiwa. It's basically the same pose, the same um, body, but she's the, the, the figure has become a black woman. But even there's lots of other sort of similarities so that when you're seeing my painting you can't help but understand that there's a strong relationship between the two artworks in terms of their proportionality where they sit in the, the frame of the picture um, and even the but then there are these obviously kind of ironic differences you know the fact that um, Yara Santiwa who is this military commander and anti-colonial leader is holding a, a shotgun and she's wearing a sort of um, a toga, um, of which you know is is part of the sort of Ghanaian, um, you know, s um, high status dress of the nineteenth um, century. So the, I suppose if you think the, the perhaps the, the theoretical question that perhaps I was asking in making these kind of investments artistic investigation was does this artistic gesture of mine expose critique or perhaps become complicit in the original work's glorification of elite um, colonial privilege hmm. okay so um, I think the, um, I think this is the, the more or less the last 
kind of work which I'm going to interrogate in this respect. It's a painting um, called For Moses Had Married an Ethiopian Woman, Numbers 12 to 1. And it's where I suppose this notion of unmasking Africana moves away from, you know, British art or even art, to be honest, and into a, a, another field. And one of the fields which I'm particularly interested in is um, the wider field of religious culture and Christianity, especially. So, um, although, so the idea is that this painting is, a, is supposed to represent, allude to the ancient. Jewish hero Moses um, and there are certain kind of things in the painting which I suppose are symbolic or, or give you a clue to that intended meaning so for example Moses in the Bible famously had a sort of a brass rod around which was um, curled well which I think could be trans transformed into a snake and that's one of his sort of symbols of power and of his divine power so this sort of line there on the ground and then um also as we know moses is famous for um giving us our laws with his tablets of stone so i've got two they're not exactly tablets but my computer actually does fold around into a tablet as well so he's got his two tablets of stone if you like to remind you who who he is and then, obviously, key to an understanding of the painting is the title, For Moses Had Married an Ethiopian Woman. So, um, Numbers 12 to 1 is where, in the Bible, you'll find this particular quote. Um, and there are very, oh, sorry, there are very few depictions, well, I say very few, so is it fair to say little more than one? <laughs> there might be more than one. There is a paper about this by uh, a really cool um, art historian, Elizabeth McGrath, and um, she's identified this particular painting by Jacob Jordan's 17th century, um, I suppose, Baroque Dutch Golden Age painter of Moses and his Ethiopian wife. But I think that is more or less it. Um, in terms of depictions of Moses and his Ethiopian wife in Western art history, even though Western art history is kind of filled with images of Moses because he's such an iconic figure in this Christian, um, this, this part, this um, Christian-based culture. So, for example, we have a like, you know, a lot of great artists like Michelangelo have depicted Moses, but obviously Moses' tablet is there, but his wife isn't there. Fair enough, you know. Michelangelo didn't often paint people with their wives. Um, and there's a few other Moseses from the highest sort of ranking parts of um, Western culture, which is cinema. And... Um, there's no real under, sort of attempt then the casting of Yvonne de Carlo or Maria Valverde alongside Charles Hester and Christian Bale to think of Moses' his Ethiopian wife. Um, 
at least not in a way that is recognizable or, vis or obvious or ostent, you know, ostension. Um, yeah, obvious. And so, and it, you can see that it's, it's a tradition which has lasted, you know, quite a long time from the 50s up until almost today. Um, there's not much understanding really of um, Moses as an African person either, because obviously he was born in Africa according to the Bible. Um, so, you know, but you know, that's another, perhaps another question. So, when I, um, so I made that painting as part of a residency while I was in, I undertook in South Africa in 2015. And um, one of the things which was really sort of, I found really, um, you know, I, 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 want, I don't want to use the word inspiring, but which I wanted to kind of deal with was thinking about this, um, um, the massacre which had taken place a couple of years earlier of miners at Marikana Mine, which obviously there's a press photograph here. Um, because, as we know, the massacre took place sort of on TV. Um, and so when I was there, in um, spending time traveling around um, the region, um, I kind of you know, made some studies, photographic studies, of where the miners live, their sort of accommodation, and the British-owned Marikana Platinum Mine. And these sort of figure in the painting. Um, so you can't, it's quite, you can't quite see it on this size of the painting, but I think if I go back, it kind of becomes a bit more obvious. It's sort of on the horizon, the, the mine, and then the, um, the shack is kind of there, a bit closer in, in the foreground, when <coughs> closer in the background. Um, and I suppose, for me, you know, the, the purpose of thinking about that in that context is that um, it's, it's, it's a, almost a, it's a very strong historical, if you like, link. Moses is considered as a freedom fighter, and one of the first acts which he carries out in the Bible is he, he, um, he witnesses a, a slave a slave master beating a, a slave, and Moses steps in and um, and uh, dispatches the slave master. Um, so there's this notion of him having this anti-slavery um, kind of freedom fighter type of, of role in, in Jewish history. And I should also say as well that I am sort of Jewish as well, so my, my heritage is part Jewish. So, um, and this is an installation view of the painting at um, the Gallery MoMA in Johannesburg. And that's uh, just to give you an idea of the, the gallery. I was really happy to sort of participate in, um, or to work with Gallery MoMA, because it's one of the few sort of major black-owned galleries in, in, Johannes, in South Africa, I should say. And in fact, quite a few of the, this, these paintings also had sort of religious themes as well, sort of related to biblical and apocryphal religious stories. And that's just a picture of the gallery from the outside. 
and then the painting as well became part of my installation at the Diaspora Pavilion at Venice in 2017. I suppose that gives you an idea of, you know, this kind of scale of the painting as well. And it says slide 40 of 41. And that's, does it, is it just flashing up? Is it coming up? There you go. So if you, oh, then it goes away again. That's not very helpful, is it? It's my website. If you want to see any more of my artworks or find out more about my practice, that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you could hear me at the back. Yeah.